and welcome to episode 71 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. All parents worry about their kids and how their futures will turn out. But for parents of special needs kids, those worries can be much more immediate. It's not just, will my kid make it through school, but will my kid make it through this grade? Will my child make it through the next grade? And what about high school? What will life be like after high school? Could we even think about college or tech school or even some kind of career? That's why I think one of the best things for parents is to be able to hear from adults with special needs who have gone through the challenges and have been able to make a successful life for themselves. Over the next few episodes of Special Parents Confidential, we're going to do just that. My guest is Patrick Parks, who I met earlier this year. Patrick was born with cerebral palsy and has had numerous challenges throughout his life. He made it through school, into college, and he's now a substitute middle school teacher here in West Michigan. He's also a Paralympian in the sport of boccia. Patrick's story and his unique perspective as someone who had special needs in school and is now a school teacher is quite informative, and I think everyone who hears it is going to learn something interesting. So we start at the very beginning. Patrick was born prematurely and suffered a brain trauma that resulted in cerebral palsy. Of course, he has no memory of those early days, but he talks about what his parents told him about that time, how much therapy and extra help he needed in his early childhood, and what things were like for him when he started going to school. Well, yeah, so um, so typically um, physical therapy and, and occupational therapy are the two main interventions um, that are recommended for um, children born with cerebral palsy. And so uh, physical therapy and occupational therapy, as I mentioned, are kind of the cornerstones that you're introduced to from the earliest stages of life. So I even remember being in physical therapy when I was uh, two years old, you know, going through different uh, different exercise routines and such, which is um, difficult to to kind of uh, wrap your head around because you know your parents and, and the adults in your life realize the need for it because of a thing we call neuro neuroplasticity and you know building these brain connections, especially when you have a brain injury, Mm -hmm. but it's hard as a two-year-old to understand uh, the utility of it and um, that kind of working against your desires to just be a kid. Um, Right. And and typically, you know, um, it's easier kind of for the adults to, to see the payoff and so, you know, therapists might come across as demanding or barking orders and, and, and things, even though they may not mean to. And the um, so I, th- I think it's, it's it's a really interesting dynamic because it's for the best, but it doesn't always um, start off as kid friendly, I guess, if that if right. that makes sense. Right. Well, kids want to do what they want to do. And, you know, when you're being uh, from that standpoint, you're being forced to do something. Well, the first reaction is no. Yeah. Because that's one of the first words a kid learns that has actual value. <laughs> yeah. And, and and I think as a kid, you, you start to cling to um, whatever uh, small bits of power you can or, or small bits of ownership of your life that you can. And so that that no that you mentioned is a very powerful response you learn and, and as you age it becomes harder too because even as a even as a small child you start to form your earliest social interactions and friendships and um, when you're in these things like PT and OT and other interventions that naturally takes away from 
your ability to, as I said, just be a kid, explore your world, and also make those natural friendships. And so your social life, you start to see that very early trade-off, which is difficult. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. But um, unfortunately, things have to go on. Now, was there a time before you were in a wheelchair? Uh, were you, uh, when you were younger, was uh, walking or getting around easier for you? Or have you always had some uh, mobility struggles? So, yeah. So um, with cerebral palsy, I'll, I'll just step back a little bit here um, with a bit more of a definition. Um, it's really a blanket term for, as we said, um, a brain injury that oftentimes occurs at birth, which um, can result in some some physical challenges. It's it's really has to do with um, the messages your brain sends to your nerves and your muscles. And so, yes, I've always um, had limitations as far as mobility um, from from those earliest kind of therapy stages. I started with. Um, a, a manual wheelchair and then also a walker. So it's a walking frame. I know they refer to it um, as a, more of a frame in Europe, but it's more commonly a walker as we would we would know it. Um, and I used that throughout school. In fact, I used a walker throughout. Um, I think it was up kindergarten through sixth grade. I was um, in a walker entirely, and then um, with some intensive physical therapy. Uh, regimens and treatments that I um, that I tried, um, I progressed to crutches, which is on paper a great thing. Um, that's kind of the next progression. You start um, the walker is kind of the, the it's always a wheelchair walker, and then maybe crutches, and then one crutch, and then hopefully you're on to independent walking. But mm-hmm. um, for me, uh, you know, after after progressing to crutches, I found out that that yes, strength-wise and therapy-wise, that was a great accomplishment. But in terms of the practicality of it, um, I started to realize that I was, um, that when you use crutches, you open yourself up to, you know, whether it be wet floors, whether it be ice on the pavement, whether it be even papers, I found that I was in middle school catching in the hallways. Um, and if, if my crutch caught a paper, then I was going down Oh, as well. Man. And so after, uh, you know, many falls, I, I still have pairs of crutches that I'll use from time to time, but I've, I've kind of gone back to, to more of the walker for stability and more of using that, um, for, I guess you would say more fitness at this point and, mm-hmm. and physical maintenance. Um, as far as my day to day in terms of being able to get out in the community and also work full time, um, I make use of an electric wheelchair now, which I did not have as a child. Um, and, and that makes it easier to have independent mobility, but also quick mobility to be able to, to function in the workplace and in the community as well. Right, right. And I can imagine with crutches, too, like you say, it, uh, you know, you don't think of that. But, yeah, a wet, slippery surface or uh, ice or snow or anything like that, uh, it can cause all kinds of problems. And I would also imagine, too, now, depending upon what kind of crutch you're using, whether it's the uh, shoulder crutches or if it's the, uh, oh, I forget the name of them, the ones that just go up the arms. The forearm you, crutches. Yep, right, yep. yeah. I imagine, too, if you're having difficulties with muscle coordination, being able to get your arms and your legs to work together uh, using crutches is probably a bit of a challenge, too. Yeah, I, I mean, I would I would say, and, and obviously a PT and OT, um, anybody in kinesiology would be able to, to delve into more of the academic side of that. Um, but I would say 
you know, and, and that's certainly something, as I mentioned, that you work on in physical therapy, building up that coordination to be able to move from uh, those different mobility devices. It really is the same, um, I guess, walking motion, the same coordination, but you're right in terms of from a nuanced standpoint, you know, you really have to be aware of where you're putting that crutch, um, especially given the, the weather challenges and the different items on the floor challenges that we talked about. You have to be aware of where you're putting that crutch, um, which is which is definitely a more nuanced movement, I guess, than a walking frame or a walker. Um, and, and that adds, I think, to the challenge because if you're talking about um, going through middle school, as I was at that point, and, and up through high school, you've got things going on around, you've got the social scene, so it's very easy to stop and want to say hi to somebody and then realize that, oh, I've extended too far, I put my crutch out too far, I'm going down. And it's this kind of uh, split-second uh, conversation that you have with yourself. So it's uh, suffice it to say, you know, I think the walker for me, especially from a more of a fitness standpoint now, um, is, is the, the safer bet. Um, but also, you know, it's, it's been great having a motorized wheelchair as well, um, to be able to really have that independent mobility that I wouldn't have otherwise, because when I, when I did use crutches more so, and even some to somewhat of an extent with the Walker, um, I do need to have some kind of, um, some kind of, uh, visual, I guess, someone watching out to make sure that because if I were to fall or something, um, you know, I would hope that someone would be around. And so just kind of that standby assistance was always, always helpful and was possible when I was going through school. But now, you know, working as a professional and being independent in the world and community, the um, wheelchair makes more sense on a day-to-day, day-to-day basis. Um, and so that's why kind of the walking devices have taken a bit of a backseat, if only for more from more of a fitness and physical maintenance maintenance standpoint um, mm-hmm. at this point, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, injuries are certainly something you have to watch out for, and you don't need that on a constant <laughs> struggle. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you, like I said, it's a, so even from our first question is this idea of a trade off. So you start to realize, you know. The physical fitness side of things is great, and being able to 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 walk um, and, and build those skills uh, that that's a great thing. But then also when you start looking at what you're trading off and what kind of independence you're giving up, um, you know, needing that standby assistance and having to worry about that um, those emergencies popping up, those kinds of things. That's when I think a lot of people start to have the conversations with themselves and others around them about okay maybe for independence wise, a wheelchair full time makes sense. And then you can still do a lot of those other physical things that I mentioned, um, outside of work, outside of family life, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a safety and security issue, obviously, um, to touch more on physical therapy, because, um, you know, there seems to be an attitude among a lot of the experts that with the right kinds of physical therapy and cerebral palsy can be beaten or at least made uh, better. And a lot of uh, the physical challenges can be improved. But now from your own perspective, that's maybe not quite accurate or how, how, how accurate is that statement? I mean, I, I would say, um, and, and maybe I touched on this a little bit before, but cerebral palsy is such a, such a, 
broad um, disability in the sense that it's really a catch-all for for that uh, brain injury that occurred either at birth or up until the age of two, I believe, is the formal um, cutoff. And so it really, as far as how people respond to different therapies and treatments, it really depends on the person and it really depends on you know, what they're dealing with from a brain injury standpoint. Um, but I would say, I think the attitude about, you know, cerebral palsy can be beaten with the right kind of effort or the right therapy. I think a lot of that is perpetuated through the media because you see, and I'm not trying to, to blame the media in a political standpoint, a la, you know, our president and fake news and all of that kind of stuff. But, um, but I think, um, through very well-intentioned coverage, um, we see a lot of these kind of special interest stories of parents and and children and families pursuing these highly intensive rehab treatments similar to those that I've done in the past. And when they get covered on the media, it is, it's more about, oh, so-and-so is working to beat cerebral palsy or, or so-and-so suffers from cerebral palsy or is bound to a wheelchair. And those, those kinds of um, I think one-off uh, language uh, usages are, are not helpful because it really portrays the disability as this kind of affliction, as you said, that can be can be beaten if you just work hard enough. And I think what is uh, and that that might be the case for for some folks, uh, but I think what's lost in that conversation is this idea that cerebral palsy and other physical disabilities um, are brain injuries. They are a permanent part of you. And um, although, you know, intensive physical rehab and those kinds of treatments are very helpful and can certainly improve quality of life, um, I think this expectation that if you just work hard enough, you can beat it, or if you didn't beat it, you didn't work hard enough is a very dangerous expectation because, um, as I said, it's always going to be part of you. And um, you enter the territory of you know, how much therapy can you do? And even if you you enter this, this territory of, of marginal gains, so, you know, right now I could do therapy probably 12 hours a day, and I, I wonder what gains I would make. Um, you know, they might, be, they might be some impressive gains, but at what cost? What are you giving up? Are you giving up um, ability to work full-time? Are you giving up social opportunities are you giving up so it's it's again i know i've mentioned trade-offs a lot already in this very short conversation but it's again a big trade-off and i think a lot of people start to realize that you know the 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 constant pursuit of therapy and this idea of beating cerebral palsy as the news likes to portray it um is kind of a misnomer if that makes sense yeah well also i think there's a lot of uh advertising and marketing that enters into this and the whole idea of a miracle cure you know if you just do this and do this and it'll be solved and there's a lot of money behind that and the problem is like you say i think they're setting up you know, there's possibility of success for some, but I think they're setting a lot of people up for just more failure by doing that. Oh, for sure. And I, I mean, I, I, so I think, um, and it's not to say, I don't want to, I don't want to portray it as within kind of an all or nothing framework. It's not to say that you should avoid seeking out these new opportunities and these understandings and these, these different treatments. But I think, um, you have to know, you have to be a, an informed consumer as you would be, 
um, anywhere else and in any other context and, and really be realistic about what you expect to gain um, from these kinds of things. And so, I mean, if it's a case of where a therapist will say, oh, well, we can help your child develop transfer skills or independent living skills, those kinds of things, and you see the evidence of that, then perfect. Continue, by all means, continue with that course. But this kind of, um, these kind of miracle cures that um, purport that your, your children will be walking within a certain amount of time after having moderate to severe cerebral palsy um, are different uh, animals. And I think um, it's more of, I think cerebral palsy life and really any permanent injury life, it's more of, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, right? And and some of these treatments, I think, are marketed, as you said, as as this kind of more of a sprint that if you just take this one intervention or this one, um, you know, shot, whatever it might be, there's no such thing as a magic pill, but it kind of falls in the same scenario. And so I think, as I said, you just have to be an informed consumer and you have to realize that, um, and, and I think it... it it brings it in the social side of it as well. Um, it's realizing that disability is just a natural part of human diversity. It's not something that's pure, that purely comes from a medical model, although there are medical diagnoses and treatments that can be used to improve quality of life. Um, it's not something that just needs to be necessarily addressed and treated. And if you haven't done that, you're a failure. It's more of this is a circumstance that, that you are in in your life and, and how are you going to live that life and how are you going to live it in a way that makes it, as I said, a natural part of human diversity and not um, this treatment that you're constantly fighting. I think that, so that goes to a broader social question there too that I think the media and for in a lot of ways society in general needs to do a better job of dealing with. So can we talk about some of the financial burdens that accompany disability treatments? You know, because it seems like everyone, you know, the media loves to talk about the latest treatments, as we've been saying. But the fact of the matter is health insurance either covers very little of these treatments or it doesn't cover any of it. So the expenses are simply out of reach for a lot of people who need the help. Oh, for sure. And and honestly, um, I worked in public policy for a time and healthcare quickly became an interest of mine. But um, I left with uh, fewer answers than I thought I came in with. Um, And so that speaks to the complexity of the system. I think uh, a lot of um, if we seek to understand this, I think a lot of the disconnect comes from the fact that a lot of times treatments with cerebral palsy being a brain injury and being about that neuroplasticity and keeping those those connections strong and, and sharp, um, a lot of it is, is more about a maintenance routine, um, I would say. And I think a lot of insurance companies, when they look at treatments, they evaluate treatments, they fall victim to this narrative that I think, as I mentioned, the the media is very guilty of of spreading, which is this idea of a miracle cure, right? And so then if you think about it from an insurance company perspective, they're looking at it from, oh, look at all this cost that that these families are coming to us with, um, you know, proposing that we cover these kinds of treatments and this kind of equipment. Um, and what is that? What's the payoff? Are we seeing any sort of improvement. And um, I think there are a couple problems with this. Um, first is that it's, an, it's, you know, disability is not always just a business decision, right? I think it's difficult to kind of couch that in a, um, 
in this always kind of evaluative framework, if that makes sense. Um, but I think um, I don't really necessarily want to blame the insurance companies either, because I think that I know a lot of people, and I don't mean to get too political here, but I know a lot of people talk about this idea of Medicare for all or, or some greater form of socialized medicine. But you, regardless of the merits on each side, I think you run into the same dilemma, which is that there are scarce resources to go around. And so even in a, even in a social, more socialized standpoint, um, I think the powers that be or the administrators will start to look at some of these treatments and say, what is the payoff? Are you really seeing gains? Are you really beating cerebral palsy, to, to quote that horrible um, you know, framework that we've already talked about? And so um, I, don't know, I don't know what the answer is. Um, I would, if I had to suggest something, and I think we're moving at least a little bit in that direction, we need a little bit more work on the policy side in that direction, but more toward um, something like health savings accounts that would um, put money in the hands of consumers and allow them to to really explore some of this new equipment and these new new treatments. And then that opens up chances for these parents to and families to negotiate with some of these companies to say, look, we have this amount of money to spend. Um, you know, and you would I think you would naturally start to see some of those costs come down, but I will say too that um, until we get some of these changes and, and allow uh, give these parents and families more market flexibility, that, whether that be through health savings accounts or other means, um, one of the problems too is that even even basic uh, equipment that we all take for granted is considered a luxury in the disability world, right? So I will say, for example. I have a specialized bike that I use for for fitness, um, and it's a it's got a seat. It's it's not quite a recumbent bike, but it's it's got a seat on it that's specialized so that I'm not sitting on on just a plain um, run of the mill seat. It's got a seat in the back and and pedals, and I use that for both indoor and outdoor for for fitness and and those kinds of. Um, pieces of equipment are certainly not covered by insurance. A lot of families are doing um, individual fundraisers and going um, through grant organizations and those types of things to get to get that type of equipment. And even worse, um, a, lot, a lot of times uh, more basic needs, like uh, for kids and families that struggle with communication, um, communication devices and those kinds of apps through iPads aren't always covered by insurance. And so you're talking about um, not just physical fitness at this point, but also the basic human right of communication. And and um, so you're seeing struggles there and, and figuring out how to, how to get those devices covered. And so um, it's, it's a mess. Um, I think that's the best way of, of putting it. I think we need a lot of improvement in terms of, um, you know, continually educating providers on what is what kinds of devices help to really improve quality of life. I think if um, insurance companies started to see some of the impact that some of these basic devices had on the lives of kids and families, maybe the um, maybe the approvals would change. Um, but then again, as I said, I don't know that I necessarily want to uh, blame the insurance company as the you know, 
full-scale villain here because I think that no matter what kind of healthcare delivery system you have, whether it's a, a free market system or a socialized system, I think those those trade-offs still come into play. And as a matter of fact, as I mentioned with health savings accounts, I think the free market system really um, does rule the day here, whether we see it or not. I think our problems with resource scarcity and um, equipment provisions, especially for those with disabilities, whether whether we're willing to admit it or not, would actually get worse under um, more of a socialized system. But that's, again, just my opinion, and I don't mean to get too political here, but, um, but, th- but it does speak to some of the challenges, I think, that are out there, regardless of how you slice the issue. Right, right. And of course, you know, um the no not everyone can win the lottery so <laughs> for sure and uh, and getting the money you know the money is and speaking of money um how did your condition affect your parents and their financial situation during the early years uh when they were taking on more of that uh financial responsibility for sure so um i mean so i will then speak to and i feel like we're coming back full circle talking about all of the different um you know, off-label treatments, so to speak, that are out there. Um, I am kind of a poster child for having tried a lot of those treatments because my parents were were lucky enough to have means um, through their own means and then also some family support as well to be able to try some of these different things. And so, um, but I would say that um, it it definitely um, is, it definitely is a challenge. I mean, you don't really... um, when you have children, you don't really plan on these kinds of expenses, and that's not even talking about just the just the uh, treatments themselves that insurance doesn't cover, but also even just pieces of equipment that they don't necessarily cover. So, for example, wheelchairs, um, ankle foot orthotics, those kinds of things, they may cover a certain baseline. They may have a a certain um, line item that they do cover, but in order to make a profit, as companies have to do to keep their lights on, they oftentimes have to inflate the prices of those things. And so, um, your lev- it, it oftentimes becomes a negotiation between the insurance companies and the providers saying, okay, well, we'll cover 80% of your sticker price. Or if we cover 80% of your sticker price, then the hopefully this isn't the case in most cases, but it, it does sometimes come down to parents and families being liable for the rest of it. Um, and so um, that's where, you know, you can have some different combinations of different grant funding and things come in. But um, to your point, it definitely is a, a financial sacrifice that I don't think a lot of parents envision when they talk about parenthood. Um, you know, you're... You, you do hopefully plan for college expenses and those kinds of things down the road, but having to, to shelf out for, for not only regular physical therapy, but also kind of these extra experimental treatments and then um, any sorts of new equipment that may come on the market. Yeah, it is, a, it is a certainly, certainly a burden um, as you age into adulthood as well, because some of those same you know, expenses with upgrading equipment and things like that um, come into play, you know, even after you've left the nest, so to speak. Well, let's talk about going to school then and uh, being able to move around. Accessibility in schools 
uh, can always really be more of a problem than you think. You know, I'm struck by the fact that a lot of schools have plenty of staircases to get from floor to floor, but they often only have one very small elevator, and it's seldom in a central location. And, you know, sometimes it can't even accommodate some of the larger wheelchairs and mobility cards. How hard was it when you were a student to get around the grade school that you attended? So um, I would say, um, and just going back to my grade school, I was lucky enough um, in a grade school scenario, we were on a, um, I was living in West Virginia at the time, and we were on a, a kind of dealing with a one floor setup, K through six. And so that was um, pretty easy in terms of, I was using a walker back then, and I was actually quite fast. So um, being younger and a little bit more spry, I was able to to make it down the hallways. And we, were, we weren't doing kind of the switching that kids are doing K-5 now these days. Um, we were in one classroom for most of the day. Um, and so that side of it was pretty easy. The only challenge was in that particular school in West Virginia, um, they were dealing with a lot of growth and didn't have, I guess, the resources or the time to build on new facilities. And so some of our elective courses, I remember music um, being in a trailer, and I remember um, certain uh, classes also being in a trailer as well. And so sometimes, you know, I hate to say it, no disrespect to music teachers and other things, but I um, realized that with my dexterity limitations, physical limitations, that music wasn't going to be my calling. And so sometimes I would admittedly skip music in favor of a study hall or something. But that was, that was really the only um, barrier that I had from an early age. Um, and then I was lucky enough when I was in seventh grade, our classes, um, and, and again, that West Virginia junior high were pretty well concentrated down a single hallway. And so while it was uh, challenging and tiring at some point, I was using crutches at the time um, to make it between those classes. It was still a straight shot down that hallway. So it made it fairly easy in the grand scheme of things. Now, where it got more challenging, I would say, is um, once I moved to Grand Rapids in eighth grade and started dealing then later with um, Forest Hill Central High School and um, it wasn't so much the school itself that was inaccessible, but it was more about the, you know, having to change classes rapidly from maybe the first floor to the second floor, back to the first floor, and so on and so forth. And so, yes, you're right, the elevator was there, and yes, it was a, a pretty small to mid-sized elevator. And so, um, and I, you know, I never had any specific challenges using it when I needed to, but I would imagine you know, a lot of schools have been able to get by on the fact that um, very few students actually need an elevator on a regular basis, so they're able to use a very small elevator. But I, I would hate to see a scenario in which more students and staff started to need that elevator, and then I wonder how that would play out, especially because you're only given about five minutes for passing times. Um, and that's not to say that... Um, you know, my teachers were always wonderful about letting me leave early and show up late um, as I needed in order because, you know, I would leave early, but then in a, um, walking back and forth, um, I would sometimes show up a few minutes late. And so they were always very understanding in that respect for the most part. Um, I would say one of the challenges that, thank God, we never had to really confront in a serious manner is the idea of emergency preparedness, right? Um, and so, 
when so the elevator is fine and dandy when it works but say for example there was a natural disaster or a fire or something that rendered the elevator um non-operational then we started to have to get to the point of using this specialized chair or device that would track down stairs and and locating that and pulling that out of this uh random locker that was positioned in a stairwell kind of thing and so thank god we never had to use that in a serious manner but um i would say i mean there are certainly barriers that i think a lot of schools don't think about um I would and and policies as well that have some unintended effects, and I'm sure we'll get into that maybe more. I don't know. Well, we should, yeah, maybe we should talk about that right now. I mean, uh, so that, um, yeah, because it does occur to me. I mean, we do schools do uh, emergency drills and fire drills, and even um, uh, what are they calling them now? You know, it's basically a bomb threat. <clears throat> drills and that sort of thing. I don't know oh, what the yeah. I don't know what the official terminology is for it now. But even because you are teaching in a school as well or several, a couple of schools as a substitute to a teacher has has there ever been any discussion of using uh something that would get the wheelchair people from one floor to another? During these drills, has anyone does anyone take this equipment out and test it to make sure it's actually working? Well, I mean, I mean, so again, I can I can just speak to my own experience as a student. I remember we did have the one device um, that was kind of a track chair um, that was it was for lack of a better way of putting it, almost like this glorified stroller with tracks on the bottom of it that would navigate stairs. Um, and I, I do rem- and I, I don't know what the answer is in terms of best ways to make sure the use of that device is not only kept up maintenance wise, but also fresh in your mind as well. But I only remember, you know, demoing it maybe once, maybe twice, um, you know, just saying, oh, here it is. And here's how you would use it, you know, teaching not only me, but also aides that I worked with as well to, to operate it. Um, but, I, but again, I think that, um, comes into, to play. Um, you, you hope that you never have to use it, but you wonder, you know, is the, is the kind of one-off training enough to really say that, because when you're under, uh, the duress of some kind of an emergency. Are you going to remember those steps and are you going to remember those things? I mean, um, lack of, for, I guess if all else fails, uh, schools, I know, at least from my experience as a student will typically notify the fire department that they have students on certain floors at certain times of certain days. And so if all else fails, I suppose you can be firemen's carried down, um, stairs and, and those types of things if, if devices aren't in play. But um, I, I think it's something that um, even though obviously we've been at this for a while, I mean, I am I just recently turned 31 years old, so it's been a conversation as long as I've been a student, and I think it's still a conversation in a lot of um, family respects. And so um, Again, I guess I don't, I don't know what the answer is or if there's a technically a proverbial silver bullet answer, but I, I think it's definitely a conversation that schools need to keep having, especially as technology improves. You know, how can we 
uh, best serve students and staff, keep them both safe and do that in an efficient manner. Um, you know, cause I, I mean, as I, as I mentioned, um, as a student, I was always kind of, I, uh, begrudgingly went through the orientations and stuff on some of this equipment, but I was in the back of my mind hoping and praying that we'd never have to use it. Um, and so, you know, like I said, I guess there's no easy answer, but it's, it's definitely a discussion that, that needs to be had. And I think certainly, as I mentioned, as kind of a last resort, just making sure that your emergency preparedness professionals are aware that there are students and maybe staff in the building who might have some extra needs um, when it comes to getting out of the building. I think that's the most important part. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm always one for worst case scenario thinking anyway, but sure. uh, you know, it is, it is a concern and uh, we hope that people are taking this into consideration when they're doing things and when they're making their plans. But um, you know, unless, unless you're sitting on that committee, you don't know. Yeah. And I, th- I think just to add one more piece that I thought of seeing as though we're in 2019 and unfortunately um you know, we have to talk about these active shooter drills, right, Um, that have become, you know, those were never really conceivable when I was in school, and now they're they're a regular occurrence. Um, But but even, as you mentioned, I've subbed for the last two years in a a lot of different school settings, and I remember thinking, um, and, and thank God, again, we only had to, it only got to a drill perspective. It was never a, a you know, an actual event. But I remember thinking, you know, how else am I best going to block myself in a room to make sure that I'm not just protecting myself, but also making sure that visually being in a large wheelchair, that I'm not tipping off any potential active shooter that, okay, yes, there is someone in the room. I know, you know, the kids being smaller are able to squeeze into cupboards and bathrooms and those types of things. But I think um, one of the, I mean, the unfortunate realities of today, again, being 2019, um, that I never really thought of is, you know, how are we going to accommodate students and staff um, in wheelchairs who may be larger, who may have larger equipment and may not be able to quickly, I guess, eject themselves or divorce themselves from that equipment um, in time to uh, deal with an active shooter. I mean, I would, and again, I go back to, I wasn't necessarily worried about myself, but I was more worried about, you know, um, if I can't get to a corner of a classroom where the kids are designated to stand and I'm now all of a sudden in the middle of a room, am I tipping off someone by giving a certain visual that, okay, yes, there are people in this room and this is a room I need to target kind of thing. So I was more worried, not for my, my own safety in that kind of a scenario, but more for the kids' safety, because as I said, they're able to very quickly and efficiently um, become for lack of a better way of putting it invisible and it's harder to do when you're dealing with uh, mobility challenges and also big equipment. So we'll move on here. We'll talk about your experiences as a student with getting accommodations in school and not from an accessibility 
standpoint, but also even with, um, you know, mobility issues, accessibility in school, handwriting support or whatever it was that you got, there's still a large disconnect between understanding that if a student needs some kind of accommodations, it doesn't necessarily mean they cannot learn or they shouldn't be taking difficult subjects. I mean, uh, there's it's kind of like, you know, well, if you need an accommodation, you shouldn't be taking this uh, very, very difficult class or something like that. Can you talk about that uh, reality versus uh, the con- the 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 uh, thought process that goes into that? For sure. Um, I'll certainly talk about that. And I'll say that I think, um, just as a general disclaimer, I think that we are improving as a society with our understandings. And technology has certainly helped with uh, being able to allow students avenues to show what they really can do, um, you know, and, and kind of leveling that playing field, so to speak, as much as I don't necessarily like that analogy, but for lack of a better way of putting it, leveling the playing field. But I think um, to go back a little bit, um, longer than I care to now remember. It seems like yesterday, but dealing, especially when I got to high school, um, there was this big disconnect with the idea that, you know, I, up until that point, I was a, a 4.0 honor student. And so naturally as a high achieving student who was kind of in a peer group that was looking to attend, um, prestigious schools and have, um, some good opportunities. Um, I naturally kind of rushed to sign up for various honors and AP courses. Um, and, and that kind of, a kind of an advanced placement menu, I guess, so to speak. I think the challenge though, is that, um, given that I do have limited dexterity and I relied on aides and other students for, for note-taking support, um, but also, more directly, I guess, having having limited dexterity from a from a typing standpoint. So, as one one accommodation, I did use um, computers for essays and uh, exams and those types of things. Um, but even then, even having that tool to again level the playing field, um, I was still operating at a much slower pace. And so that's where things like extended testing time come into play where students with disabilities are given, um, and it's a, it's a relatively common accommodation, but they're given more time either directly in the classroom or in, um, other specialized settings, whether it be a testing center or a testing room or something, um, to have more time to, you know, produce on a test or deal with the test. So I think, um, getting back to, again, now that I kind of took that step back and explained that getting back to the challenge, um, I think that, so when I would go to ask for accommodations and say, you know, I have um, this disability, this is how it manifests itself with slower typing speed, writing speed, um, those kinds of things, um, and we're looking at it, again, an honors or an advanced placement course, I had, um, thankfully, only a few teachers, but memorable enough, uh, kind of imply that, oh, well, if you're, if you're needing these accommodations in advanced placement in an honors course, why not just back down to a regular course? Um, and I don't mean to call it a regular course, but you get the drift. Um, why not just back down to a non-honors curriculum so that maybe you won't need um, these accommodations? The pace will be a little slower um, than an advanced placement. Um, the workload will be a little bit different, so maybe these accommodations won't come into play, which is um, not, I mean, now that I 
think about it is t a totally ridiculous statement because the physical needs are still there regardless of the material you're trying to deal with, whether it is a regular paste or an honors paste um, scenario. But I think um, it, it definitely, as you mentioned, the idea of a disconnect is a perfect way of phrasing it because it, it definitely um, points to a lack of a social understanding, one that I hope is changing but I fear is not in a lot of ways. So this lack of a social understanding that um, just because someone might have some physical needs, um, some different challenges, may take longer to do things, um, this idea that they shouldn't be part of an honors or high-level curriculum, uh, I think, is is definitely damaging. And I think um, it's something that I would hope if I would—it's one little nuance, and there are a lot of nuances, but it's one little nuance that I would recommend that, that teachers be— uh, briefed on as they're going through their their trainings through college and, and professional development and whatnot that um, just because you know as I said someone may need accommodations doesn't mean they're not capable and not desiring to handle um, higher level work um, that may be part of an honors or an AP peer group um, so I think uh, this this idea of just because you might need what what I guess is termed special education programs that you can't be gifted. I don't know if that's still used in, in today's parlance, but uh, you get the idea. That's, a I think, a misnomer again that I think we need to, to reevaluate and start to challenge. Yeah, that definitely. the accommodations themselves don't change the material. Um, accommodations, I think, are... The older view of accommodations was that it somehow made material easier or... Um, or change the material, and that's not the case at all. I mean, certain professors or certain and certain teachers and students might um, decide that that's the, the the way to go or the course to go. Maybe um, doing fewer math problems, but the same kind of math problems, those types of things. But it doesn't change, um, and so that that's a different discussion. But I think this whole um, this misunderstanding that somehow accommodations change the Desire to learn, the pace to learn, and the ability to learn um, is something that needs to be constantly challenged at every step of the way. Yeah, definitely. The you know the accommodations uh, are just to help the student get to the material. It doesn't make uh, the material easier, or it shouldn't. It's not supposed to. It's just to help them uh, deal with however it is they need to be able to express themselves. Yeah, for sure. And I th I think I mean a, a general rule of thumb, and I've I've done a lot of actually from my own experiences and then as I got to college developed more of a kind of a research interest in this idea of inclusive education and I think one of the rules of thumb is a very simplistic way of looking at it but it's I think helpful for a general audience is that um, if something is changing the way a student is changing fundamentally the way a student receives instruction um, it's not a true accommodation uh, accommodations are really about making sure that there are multiple access points to a particular piece of instruction or a particular program, right? Um, and so uh, so this whole idea that accommodations mean um, fundamentally altering a curriculum or changing the way a student learns or, or 
um, what a student learns, I think, is is misguided because our goal always with accommodations and our goal with inclusive education is to make sure that students, um, you know, myself included, are always given every opportunity to learn right alongside their peers, just made, uh, you know, do it or act in a different uh, way in doing it may have a different delivery method or a different device, but um, certainly doesn't change the act of learning and the act of, you know, putting that learning to use. Right, right. Whether it's, uh, you know, a student can handwrite something or whether they need to be able to type it, that shouldn't affect the outcome. It's just giving them the chance to get the information in the way that is expected to prove that they've learned something. For sure. And I mean, uh, certainly, um, and, and we were coming around to that idea as I was in school, but certainly now with the advent of even more technology, um, it's become even more obvious, even letting kids express themselves in different ways. So maybe if a kid has difficulty expressing their, themselves in writing, um, you know, allowing them to produce uh, a writing assignment uh, verbally or um, you know, if a kid has difficulty not only physically manipulating a, a text, um, but also, you know, maybe difficulty with visual tracking, so slower reading speed, then you're using audiobooks and using e-text. In fact, I don't think I would have gotten through college with the hundreds of pages of reading a night without um, e-text, because I do have, um, it's not overly perceptible, but I do have um, some slight visual tracking challenges um, with dealing with and processing text. And so those kinds of small things that people don't think about are, are instrumental in making sure that kids get the same experience as their peers. Um, so I think, again, it's, uh, we talked a lot about attitudes. I think it's more the, from the, the main barriers are not the existence of accommodations themselves at this point. It's more the, um, the attitudinal challenge of continuing to educate people that, look, um, a student or even staff members may take advantage of, of certain accommodations, but it doesn't change the way and doesn't change the quality of what they're delivering as students or staff. And here's where we're going to end this part of our interview with Patrick Parks. Now, in the next few episodes, we'll be talking about how he made his choice for university and moving on into teaching as well as participating in Paralympics. A reminder that we call Special Parents Confidential the resource podcast for parents of special needs kids. And to make that happen, we need your help. Please be sure to share this podcast with all your favorite social media platforms. We have buttons to instantly share us on some of the more popular social media sites right on each episode posting on our website, specialparentsconfidential.com. Or you can do the old-fashioned method of copying and pasting our web address into any status update you choose. Anything you can do to help spread the word about us will help. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening. <laughs>